I'm Perrine Linz, and you're listening to Infraintelligence, a podcast from Renew Canada magazine. In today's episode, you'll hear a discussion I hosted previously about funding Indigenous megaprojects. Many of Canada's Indigenous communities are in need of new infrastructure, from water assets and better roads to stronger schools and clean energy. In the following discussion, you're going to hear how new partnerships between First Nations communities and developers are leading to some of Canada's most incredible assets. That is, assets that can be maintained by the communities they serve. This ability for the community to work on local infrastructure, both in the short and long term, is key for economic development. Good morning, and welcome to Renew Canada's Infraintelligence series. My name is Corrine Lenz, and I'm the content director here at Actual Media. I'll be your moderator for today's discussion. Now, today's topic, funding Indigenous megaprojects, gives us the opportunity to take a closer look at the partnerships between Indigenous communities and the builder developers that are leading to some of Canada's really most exciting infrastructure projects. Projects that can be maintained in and by the Indigenous communities they serve. Now, before I introduce our speakers, I would like to take a minute to acknowledge the many First Nations and Indigenous peoples of Canada as the original stewards of this great country. I'm here in Toronto, which is located on the traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabeg, the Chippewa, and the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat peoples. We all share in the responsibility of our natural infrastructure, and there is much we can learn from the traditional knowledge of the land, water, and materials that allow us to build projects that benefit all Canadians. All right, so let's get started and meet today's speakers. So first I'll invite you guys to screen. So we got Benoit Dion from Sanexon, and then we have Chief Charlene Gale from Fort Nelson First Nation. Good morning. And then we'll have Hillary Thatcher from Canadian Infrastructure Bank and Stefan Liddington from Collier's, last but not least there. Now we're going to start out. And uh, Benoit, will you kick us off, please, with your uh, introduction and a little bit about Sanexon as well? Yes, uh, thank you, Corinne. Uh, hello, everyone. Uh, I'm very happy to be here with you today. I'm truly honored be part of a panel of distinguished speakers. I've been with Sanexon for more than 12 years. I'm currently the senior manager for business development. Sanexon is an environmental contractor specializing primarily in soil, water, and waste management. Our company's head office is in the province of Quebec, but we also have offices in Kitsma in Northern BC and in the Arctic. My role is to develop new market opportunities, which includes forming alliances with indigenous communities. Our first partnership with indigenous group dates back almost 20 years with the creation of Kikik Talok Environmental in Iqaluit, Nunavut. I sit on the board of directors for two companies we have present in the Canadian North, one in Nunavut and one in Nunavik, Northern Quebec. Our agreements, be they companies or joint ventures, are for the most part in Eastern Canada, Northern Quebec, Nunavut, and in the Maritime. We are currently in negotiations with groups in Northern BC. We currently have a team of 20 professionals working full-time directly on projects in indigenous communities and territories. We recently created a new position of Director of Indigenous Relations to maximize the opportunities to collaborate and generate projects with the First Nation communities. The relationship that I have with the Indigenous peoples dates back more than 15 years. I had the opportunity to work on more than 10 large-scale projects in the Arctic, Northern Ontario, and Manitoba, where 90% of the workforce were Inuit or of the Cree Nation. 
I enjoyed my experiences and felt a very strong connection with the people, culture, and nature. I felt and feel that by working together and joining our knowledge, we can accomplish great things. Thank you. All right, Chief Gill, you're up next. Well, good morning, everyone. I'm joining you from the traditional territory of Treaty 8 and my home of Fort Nelson First Nation. First off, I just want to thank Kareen for having us here today. It's great to be on this panel with Hillary and Stephen, who do tremendous work in this area. I'm going to talk briefly about projects that are happening, both in my role as Chief of the Fort Nelson First Nation and my role as the Chair of the First Nation Major Projects Coalition. I believe we're in a turning point in Canada where Indigenous participation as partners and as proponents of projects is becoming more common. In my community, our nation is championing the Clark Lake Geothermal Project. And the project represents a $100 million investment in the clean energy future of our territory. It is 100% owned by our nation, which is pretty remarkable for a project its size and scale to not have a partner. Uh, We're very excited about it. And we have a lot to share with you over the next coming years because the project is currently in the development stage with the test well being drilled. And we hope to bring the project online in 2024. Separately, through the work of the First Nation Major Projects Coalition, our organization has been supporting our members on advancing other major infrastructure projects. Our capacity support is active on five different projects, representing a combined total capital cost of $7 billion. Each of those projects have an equity component for Indigenous ownership, which I believe is very important as we move forward together through economic recovery. Overall, there's a want from our nations to become involved as partners in the economic activity that is happening in their territories. And our participation in major infrastructure projects is an opportunity for us to help shape the future and to strengthen our economies. Um, This work presents many opportunities and also many challenges. So I look forward to discussing this with you today in, in this conversation. So thank you. Fantastic. Thank you. Uh, and I'm going to go to Stefan next, just because we're following the flow of my screen here. Go for it. Thank you. Uh, uh, Stephen Liddington, it's, uh, the, the pH is easy to, it happens all the time. Uh, and I'm, I'm joining you um, from, from Ottawa this morning. So I'd like to acknowledge that this is the traditional territory of the Algonquin peoples. And uh, thank you for, 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 ha- for joining uh, us this morning and for, for the uh, participation to be here with you. I, I work for Collier's Project Leaders, and I, uh, I lead our infrastructure advisory practice, particularly related to finance, project finance and financing in major projects. Um, and uh, in particular, in, in the context of what we'd like to discuss today is, is equity, meaningful equity participation for First Nations in equity projects. And and how this enables um, First Nation participation into the economic mainstream 
and develops future opportunities. Uh, and, and we'll also chat a little bit about the challenges that are obstructing that path at the moment and how we can overcome that um, more conveniently or more simply with fewer challenges than we're presently seeing in the market and have seen in the past. Uh, we do have some success stories to talk about, and I'm, I'm looking forward to that as well. And ideas on how to um, how to overcome barriers on financing, but also on capacity and and opportunity and, and bringing opportunities forward that can get met with uh, with greater reception. So thank you again for for having having me. Great, thank you, Stephen. Okay, Hillary, you're up next. Hi, and thank you. I just have to acknowledge that um, I've been enjoying the side panel and seeing where everybody's joining us from today. And it looks like we have representation from coast to coast to coast and from all sectors and industries. So uh, I want to welcome all the guests who are participating in the in listening today um, and uh, say that my name is Hilary Thatcher and I uh, lead the work at the Canada Infrastructure Bank on Indigenous and Northern Infrastructure. And uh, the bank really was set up to attract and co-invest with private sector and institutional investors in really five key priority areas, being green infrastructure, clean power, public transit, trade and transport, and broadband. And these are all areas where, um, you know, many uh, First Nations, Métis, and Inuit communities are also looking at seeking uh, investments, either in large-scale projects where they can be a partner, a meaningful partner, or in projects that are uh, gonna directly impact their communities and help build and grow their community-based infrastructure. On March 19th, the Canada Infrastructure Bank announced um, our new initiative, the, the Indigenous Community Infrastructure Initiative, where we're really focusing on, on targeting funding and uh, infrastructure investment and community-based infrastructure to help close the infrastructure gap in the same five key priority areas. And uh, I can assure you that since that announcement, we have been very busy working with communities from coast to coast to coast and, and seeing how we can move forward opportunities to close that infrastructure gap and have a real impact in community well-being. So with that, uh, I'm looking forward to the rest of this discussion on this panel. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. All right, let's get jump in and get to the discussion. Um, there are several really quite massive Indigenous-led projects right on Renew's top 100 projects in Canada list. We have the Kias and the Watanikinia Hydro projects, just to have two examples. Um, I'm curious to know, what are your thoughts on how these ownership and partnership models are evolving? And by all means, your comments don't need to be limited to these two projects that I referenced. I know you've already mentioned a few really big ones that are happening now. So why don't we start? Um, Benoit, why don't you jump in? Yeah, thanks, Karina. On our side, we don't usually work upstream of the project it's most of the time we're involved in the closure or more in the remediation stage of projects uh, for instance one of the large work sites that will begin in quebec is the decontamination of more than 200 abandoned mining sites of which many are located in indigenous lands just to give you a, an idea in numbers uh, principal mine located near shibugamo pretty close from from james barrier represent more than $100 million in environmental liability. So there are certain portion of this work situated on Nation, and which are negotiated directly and won't go to an RFP process. That's a huge opportunity. So as such, there are opportunity for the First Nation to come together with the experts and sit down with the ministry ready to negotiate. And who would anyone else like to jump in? 
Um, I'll, I'll jump in. Um, so what we're seeing is the, the business readiness of our nations is increasing. And we're moving beyond the traditional impact benefit agreements, contracting and procurement to ownership and co-development. Um, within the major projects coalition, we're assisting 12 communities in northern BC who have made a decision to acquire equity in the coastal gasoline pipeline. And we also have members who are considering uh, participating in the Trans Mountain Pipeline. So the complexity of our members' business deals are continuing to increase, and this is putting more of a demand on our capacity and resources. But there's also opportunity that we haven't seen before. So it's a very exciting time. And we see this trend continuing because achieving partnerships on projects that bring added level of certainty that I think is important for both our Indigenous communities and investors, um, it's what we're both looking for. It's, uh, it's a great way um, to form a partnership. And partnership is the clearest uh, form of consent. When you're a partner on a project, you're fully included, and the need to achieve this level of certainty is critical in moving forward with project development in Canada. Uh, Hillary, did you want to add to that too? Sure. I, you know, I'll echo a little bit about what Chief Gale just spoke about in the, in the uh, gaining capacity across our communities. So, you know, um, at the bank, we're actually working on a really important project, much like the Watakania Power Project. It's really the first of the kind of getting um, multiple communities, First Nation communities off diesel and onto clean, renewable power. And the communities in that region are driving and drove that project. We're seeing the same thing with the Kavalik Hydro Fiber Link that we're working on at the Canada Infrastructure Bank, where the Inuit, um, you know, are really driving that project. They're driving every aspect of that project from, from the early development stage to what will eventually be contracting and building a line, which will get, you know, again, five Inuit communities, not only the first land-based connection in Nunavut, but also five communities off diesel with a reliable supply of affordable power and clean power, but also broadband, which will be the first broadband connection to the to the uh, Nunavut region as well. So these are tremendous projects that are being driven by um, communities that are growing in their both financial capacity, but also their development capacity and understanding how to forge strong partnerships and are looking for strong um, you know, private sector partners to help them to move these projects into fruition. So. Yeah, I'm also glad that you mentioned the sustainability angle from there as well. I mean, all of those communities coming off diesel alone, I mean, speaking geothermal, there's so many great projects here that, I mean, that's not the emphasis of, of the conversation we're having at this moment, but boy, what a fantastic side effect that would be. Too. You, sorry, Stephen, would you like to add on, jump in on this one? Sure, I'll, I'll wrap us up here a little bit. I think that those are great project examples. And um, one thing that they mostly have in common, particularly kicking off with Wate Nikeniap and um, Kiask, uh, is that they are good partnership models with um, with uh, legislative monopolies in a, in a regulated utility space. Um, and, and for that reason, Watina Kiniap was able to, to work with government to get a 51% um, stake in that project and with Fortis BC, that, or excuse me, Fortis, their partner. Um, and, and Kiosk is 25%, uh, again, you know, with the support of government enablement of this type of inclusion and equity participation. Um, it is, it is a, a tremendous 
success story in both cases. However, the burden is on government that we see there. And that's the distinction that, I, that I'd like to make a little bit is that, um, and I, I am familiar with, with um, Chief Charlene Gale's uh, case on, on the coastal gas link, where it is not government led or supported or um, there are no interventions in any way. And it um, is a vastly more challenging process and uh, the economic affordability is, is much more much riskier. And, and so while these are terrific uh, models that we're, that we're talking about and opportunities, I think that uh, the, the burden has largely been on government to this point, which is challenging to make meaningful progress. They can't do it alone. I suppose is is my point there that we need um, we need similar corporate um, values to 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 uh, dictate how they behave in this space um, uh, to, to to drive similar successes. And I, I I know that there are terrific corporate successes out there as well. I just think the it would we would uh, be remiss if we didn't hope that we're a little bit more common. No, that's uh, <laughs> I think that's absolutely it. I know that there's a lot of projects that maybe don't fall yet into that mega project status, but there are certainly some fantastic examples of smaller type projects as well that seem to be leading in the forefront. Absolutely. So, um, Chief Gale, how does the First Nations Major Projects Coalition play into these partnerships? And perhaps you can also count, comment on how the federal announcement from earlier this week uh, that the government's planning to spend an additional $18 billion over the next five years for Indigenous communities, how that might impact Okay. Well, the the infrastructure announcement this week um, for the federal budget for Indigenous communities is much needed. It will benefit our members greatly as well because the um, we have infrastructure deficits in our community and the need is tremendous. I've traveled to many First Nation communities across Canada and uh, we need help in this front. So the $18 billion announcement is for roads, um, wastewater, it's for schools and housing. But at the same time, the coalition is focusing on ensuring our members can become partners in the major projects that are occurring in their territories because we need these revenue streams to get us um off the ground so that we can build on these projects, but we can also build up our communities and our community programming. We all know that the federal funding that comes from the government isn't adequate enough. And each year, even for my own community, we have to um, provide nation funds to offset our costs because the demands are tremendous. Um, I'm very pleased with the announcement. I think it's a huge step in the right direction. I also think that, um, um, that uh, the need... Um, to build and maintain our infrastructure over the long time is really important. So that's why our members want to get involved in equity positions and ownership and co-development of the major projects happening in their territory. We know that uh, government isn't always going to be there to help us with our funding needs. And so we feel that the only way to be involved is to be involved in these major um, projects as owners so that we can bring in our own revenue streams and um, use those funds to to build the type of projects that help raise the standards of living for our community members. Awesome. Thank you. Uh, we just had a, a question pop up here from a, a very famous guy who many of you might know, uh, Todd Latham. 
It seems like there are many opportunities for the Indigenous-led and owned projects in Canada on critical infrastructure projects like energy, broadband, and housing. Is there enough scale to incorporate P3 and other financing procurement models? And will some project bundling be required? Anyone love to jump in on that one? I can I can take a runner that I'm um, the uh, I think I think that the answer is you know um, is 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 yes there is enough scale to incorporate a P three type or an you know a non traditional procurement uh, particularly if we if we do consider bundling um, you know our our geographical challenges and and what comes out of those non non-traditional procurements and how we're looking to really transfer the risk around some of the greater challenges or the greater risks rather on on uh, on construction and certainly through operations if we were to consider that it would be a, a DDFOM or something with that long-term commitment behind it um, is something that uh, that has certainly been contemplated over over the years particularly with with fresh water with housing um but I, I it's not as though there hasn't been a champion i just don't think that there has been necessarily a collected and concerted drive towards that to explore the procurement of it even as a uh, as a as a market sounding so um I know that there are tremendous needs. I think that, um, again, it's probably something that does have to be government championed, uh, certainly. Um, but, uh, but I imagine, or rather I expect based on, based on the opportunities ahead of us in some, in some key spaces that a major project like that, which would, which would be, um, very substantial project um, could be achieved, um, and uh, I, without without naming names, I'm sure that 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 there are some departments or crown corporations in government that would be receptive to um, unsolicited proposals to, uh, for something of that effect. And I think um, just to build on the unnaming names of crown corporations that are looking at P3s in particular, the Canada Infrastructure Bank really does. Uh, look to support projects where we are including and crowding in private capital as well. Um, but we don't replace, um, you know, where where other institutional investors can be. So really, we come with some creative solutions and flexibility and a different risk appetite as well to help, you know, with that uh, public inclusion. Of, um, but we are looking for where we can attract some private investment. Now, on the idea about bundling with Indigenous communities where there's, you know, a number of communities with great number of needs. So there's over 100 communities that are reliant on diesel generation right now, for example. Um, you know, forcing that relationship, that bundling of those communities, because they are independent, self-governance communities. How do you how do you force those relationships at marriage? And it won't work everywhere, but we do see opportunities, um, certainly at the bank, in our discussions with, you know, uh, for example, some of the Inuit regions where the communities, they have same culture, same language, same infrastructure gap, where the bundling makes a lot of sense. Um, we, we've seen the bundling in, you know, the Wate project, the Watakinia Power Project. That's, you know, 19 communities coming together with a vision of how to get the communities off diesel. And so it's not insurmountable. But I do think, um, you know, to Stephen's point, probably it's going to need governments on both sides to do a bit of market sounding to really attract private 
developers and private capital to look at the the breadth and scope of the opportunity, which which I believe is there. It's um, you know it's going to take governments from the indigenous side as well as I think the federal and potentially provincial territorial governments to uh, really stand behind this as a as a way to create a lot of efficiencies and a more effective um, movement to get to closing that gap. Yes, and that was a really good question. And I know that uh, the First Nation Major Projects Coalition would be willing to help and facilitate that process. Awesome. Thank you. Um, I'm going to hop over to our other questions. So actually, Hillary, it's a good jumping point because I was going to ask you also, so the role of the Indigenous Community Infrastructure Initiative, uh, what will that have in, in terms of the evolution going forward? But also, will it also be impacted by this week's government announcement? I was kind of jumping off of what we were talking about with with Chief Gale. Yeah, I think the government's announcement is, as uh, Chief Gale said, it's welcome. You know, it is much needed. We know that um, the infrastructure gap facing First Nations alone is in excess of $30 billion. So um, the the announcement this week of just over $4 billion for infrastructure investment is, you know, absolutely needed. Um, and, you know, when I think about the gap facing both First Nations, Métis and Inuit communities, it's well in excess of the $30 billion that's been, that's been quantified. The, the, the initiative that the CIB launched, the Indigenous Community Infrastructure Initiative, really is a debt tool um, to help, um, you know, help communities look at alternative solutions to financing their infrastructure. And so um, grants from the federal government, um, this new announcement, are very welcome to help um, move more projects forward faster. And we need to accelerate closing the gap. That was certainly a part of the statement was about accelerating this closing of the infrastructure gap by 2030. And, you know, being able to look at the um, the initiative by the Canada Infrastructure Bank in partnership with a grant mechanism from the federal government, along with investments from private sector, from the community's own sources of revenues in many cases, you know, can really move many more projects forward faster. So, um, you know, it means that all projects won't be 100% reliant on grant. They may be able to lever some debt along with that, some of the granting dollars, as well as other investments, and um, should be able to move the projects forward faster. We, the, the, the Indigenous Community Infrastructure Initiative, uh, as we refer to as ICII, is, uh, is really a tool that we're working with communities directly on their projects. Um, to lend to their projects. And we can lend up to 80% of the capital costs at very low rates of interest with long amortizations to create that flexibility that's often needed for a payback schedule. We are looking at revenue generating assets. Um, and this is new for some communities. Um, you know, some communities don't think about generating revenue from, um, you know, a, a water wastewater system, for example. Um, and so this is a new sort of approach to think about how uh, infrastructure assets can be levered for debt so that you can build your your and control and and really move down that continuum of self-government self-determination by controlling your own assets um, in a new in a new fashion and so we have a lot of flexibility around the initiative and we're working really closely with the federal family and all the departments who have investments in indigenous infrastructure so that we can actually get more projects built to serve the needs of the community so um, you know that we can really start tracking and measuring um, healthier, uh, more vibrant uh, First Nations, Métis and Inuit communities. And uh, we think that that's extremely important. It makes sense. It seems like the more collaboration, the more partnership, there seems like a very strong openness in, in the uh, 
community in general to, yeah. to make all these projects happen. We have another question from our audience here that I'm going to uh, throw to you now. What role can the private sector play in helping nations take ownership of their fair share of projects and build capacity for longer term benefits? I think it's uh, ju just a quick uh, comment on that one. I think it's uh, by sharing the innovation and expertise. Uh, expertise is, is present all over Canada, just in terms of, uh, of uh, wastewater treatment, access to potable water. So we need really to find a platform where the expertise and local collaboration can exchange together. So expertise, innovation is really, the, is really key here. And I, I just think it's important that uh, Canadians understand that we want our nations to look like your communities. We want beautiful homes. We want paved roads. We want fresh drinking water. Um, these are all things that, you know, some of us have and some that desire. And we all have to work together so that we're living, uh, raising up the living standards for our people and um, take pride in that where we can, you know, decorate our our communities with our language and our culture and um, be proud of, of our communities when we invite you in. And there, there are so talented people in the communities that you just can't imagine. So talent is there. We just need collaboration and support. And that's, I, I might pick up on that because it's in the question. And, and I think that collaboration and support point that you, you finished on is, is really the unlocking of those opportunities and, and exploring how, um, uh, how for how communities can begin to um, uh, em embrace these projects and actively participate. Um, the The opportunities that they come to come around and, and they come around fairly frequently to some and fairly infrequently to others. Uh, but the the Developing a relationship and striving toward active participation from the community rather than a, and I say that because there's a bit of a spectrum. You can have, um, uh, you can have active resistance as we've seen a number of times and you can have active participation and then there's a passive, uh, you know, sort of spectrum in the middle as well. But, you know, private sector taking, taking the position that active participation is the objective um, will, help, will help gain interest, develop a relationship, contribute to the, the capacity development of that community so that there is a full understanding of the business opportunity in front of them. Mm -hmm. um, informed consent can be part of part of that process, uh, and, and and trust between parties is is something that's going to establish what what we're referencing here in the question as a fair share of projects uh, or ownership in their fair share of projects. Um, so so it's it's uh, entering into a business relationship that's based upon this expectation of respect between parties, capable parties on both sides. Um, you know, capacity support is is one of the, the, the greatest challenges that, that we are seeing mm -hmm. because it takes a lot of investment to get these projects um, from, from feasibility or from, from conception through to feasibility and delivery. Um, and so during that, during that time, equal participation um, is, is often favored, but the, the, the equal 
uh, deemed equity or the equal payment of resources into uh, into a project is where First Nations communities can often be be uh, left wanting or struggling to keep up. Uh, so, so I think that there is a role for a private sector partner to, to be able to vend in services into uh, under an MOU and an agreement and, and maintain that equilibrium of a relationship through to uh, lead to construct in a partnership. I, I just want to add one thing to Stephen's comments, because I think it's really important. Um, and it's something that we're seeing quite a bit where we have private sector or even, you know, provincial utilities who begin the development phase of a project with the on the horizon and in indigenous inclusion or indigenous equity opportunity or meaningful participation, but they continue to work on the project, develop the project, figure out how they're going to finance the project without that partner. And I'm hearing from communities and my experience with communities has been at that early development stage, begin the engagement, see whether or not the communities actually want to be an equity partner and how they can start beginning to think about how to realize on ac accessing equity or accessing capital. Think about, you know, as at the early planning stages, you know, even things like with a transmission line, alignment and rooting is so critical. And the First Nations may know it, where the territory is going to cross, know the land better than anybody who's doing a desktop mm -hmm. exercise in an urban, you know, office. They know the quality of the land. They know where the burial sites are. They know where sacred sites are that you're not going to be able to cross. And it can save the project, not just in, you know, capital and costs and, um, and delays, but it can save the project in terms of its reputation and its stake with an, a potential and future Indigenous partner. So I always say to developers and of all crosses that they should really begin those discussions. If they're open to engagement, start them at the very onset of your project plan and you'll have a much better uh, and stronger relationship for it at the end and a better project for it. That's a great point, Hillary. Um, yeah, too many times, many, 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 many times we see deals come through um, fully baked and, um, you know, the the opportunity for increased involvement is, is already um, is already shoved out. So it's a little bit it is frustrating to see that. So just inception level engagement and and meaningful participation and involvement uh, is, yes. is uh, i think that point is is well taken it sounds like it. so transparency and early engagement are key yeah um i'm gonna hop to one of our poll questions now and while we go through this for anyone out there who has not yet cast their vote please go ahead and jump in while we're doing that but the first poll question we have here is as canadians begin to plan uh, or Canada begins to plan its post-pandemic recovery strategy, are First Nations communities at risk of becoming afterthoughts in government infrastructure investments? I think that's interesting timing, what with the budget announcements this week. Um, so we've got, you know, we got pretty, no, it's, no it's definitely winning on the votes here for sure. Um, does this surprise anyone or? I wonder if we had asked the question pre-budget. Yeah, the, right. What the like response would have been. <laughs> I can tell you that the question is written pre-budget, <laughs> but it's great to see the being passed in. All right. Well, let me go. Let's try the second one then, since it's a Monday more time. Uh, First Nations are aware of the reasons behind slow progress in Indigenous-led infrastructure. Which of the following is the greatest barrier? And then we've got financing with 18%, capacity, um, that being lack of capacity to undertake sufficient capital planning and project management coming in with a 68%, just went up, 
uh, scale. So most First Nations community infrastructure projects are between 1 million and 25 million, giving it 3%. And then project timelines, lack of capacity, jurisdictional ambiguity, community engagement process and government funding delays at 11%. So capacity is coming in strong here. Lack of capacity to undertake sufficient capital planning and project management. Yes, um, I think I'll take a stab at this one. Go for it. So access to competitively priced equity capital is a major challenge. Um, most Indigenous communities have limited or at no risk capital. So this means that our down payments on a project have to be financed. Mm-hmm. Um, The Major Projects Coalition has helped our members navigate the capital markets, and we were not always successful either. Um, In one case, we went to source commercial capital for a project, and we were told that um, it would be between 12 and 15 percent when the rate of the return of the project was going to be nine percent so in our case our members had to give up their equity interest on the project because we couldn't find alternatives to to help them be successful so we have been advocating to the federal government to step in and help indigenous communities get across um, the finish line with access to capital we 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 need that either through um loan guarantees or equity loan guarantees. And to be clear, like First Nations aren't looking for handouts. We're looking for help on commercial terms that enable us to enter into the economic mainstream in a big way. Um, We see these projects happening around us um, and we're going to continue living here for thousands of years. We want to be part of them. And it just goes back to what Hillary had said about you know, we're, we're the stewards of the land. We, we know the land. And, you know, I've had people come to me with pre-baked um, conceived plans. And just to let them know that that's not going to work because where you're planning to do this is in Muskeg or a traditional salt lick or a traditional spiritual site. But had they had come to us earlier on in the game and, and invited us to be a part of the project, whether we wanted to be an equity partner or just wanted to ensure that the project they were building was going to be um, built in line with our values, then we could have helped either way. So I think that's important is, um, you know, getting past this, you know, um, way that First Nations are able to receive funding, um, our loans to, to be successful in these projects. And, you know, sometimes First Nations don't want to be a part of a project, but they'll definitely help you be successful because your business plan and your business model is in line with their with their principles and, and the way they um, develop in their territory. That's great. It's actually a good segue to maybe have it perfectly planned for me. Um, but we've talked a little bit about it already, but what are the main barriers that still remain and how can we overcome them? Um, Stephen, I know you recently spoke at the Indigenous Sustainable Investment Conference on this topic. Maybe you're a good person to kick us off here. Sure. Yeah, um, I'm happy to. And, and I believe it does align well with with that question. And I, I completely agree with, with Chief Gale's uh, response to it. Um, the the capacity issue that constrains development from or just constrains active participation uh, from communities on this, it, it does begin, you know, in the business case phase. 
for for participation in these in these projects as either an FN led solution, uh, like the Clark Lake Geothermal Project that that Chief Gale mentioned earlier, or or the Wate McKinney or Kiask, or there there are quite a few that are that are out there in the mega project space. Um, it requires a tremendous amount of due diligence to be a credible and bona fide um, counterparty in these mega transactions, which is not which is not inexpensive. The the amount of uh, commercial and financial and legal due diligence to be that partner and self organize. Um, Hillary also mentioned many times these projects are distributed because of their size, particularly in energy space. Uh, they, they range over many communities. And, and so consolidating, um, uh, you know, up to a dozen or two dozen voices into one project vehicle to be a counterparty and go to market for these projects is a is a very time consuming and very capital intensive period of time which um also to chief gale's point not many communities have funding to cover those um, development costs uh that can be later capitalized into the project but it's that upfront cost that's very challenging um, and and as Chief Gale also mentioned, that is that is a functional role of um, of the First Nations Major Project Coalition. They provide that ca capacity support, which has led to led to the the development and the um, and the progress of several major projects on their end. As finally, the you know not finally, but uh, subsequently, when when we do get to a point of a, um, a financial investment decision, or or a lead to construct or an equity partnership in these projects, the the availability of affordable capital gets constrained when uh, when we need to raise um, to to purchase our our position in these in these projects particularly related to the equity position chief chief gale's example was was a perfect perfect demonstration of a uh, a project that yields a pretty substantial return at equity 9% but is still unaffordable because it's mm -hmm. we're taking a, a debt style equity loan in order to buy that equity and so the lender is assessing the riskiness of the project, assessing the riskiness of the equity in the project and the pass through. Plus, they're one, they're one extra vehicle away from the revenue. So it just becomes risky, uh, unaffordably risky. And, and that's where the, the greatest challenge on that final push to actually participate lies. And to think you're going to say, yes, and to think if that barrier wasn't in place at that time, that project could have been built by now with no delays and on budget. Right. And, and there are some avenues that that, uh, you know, we are becoming more and more available. I think that there are lending institutions that um, that are established exclusively to lend to First Nations and. Uh, 
there is that there is still a, a bit of a gap in the market mm -hmm. because there is an awful lot of demand um, and the quali to qualify for that lending, the community has to bear a certain uh, mm -hmm. strength of balance sheet. Um, so so what those options, although they exist and they're being used successfully on a number of these projects, which I which I commend um to, to fill that equity portion and then as hillary mentioned uh, the the icii program can backstop a debt portion of that um we are we are finding now which seems like we're we're on the precipice mm -hmm. of finance of options um are there is there room for more i believe there really is um, is there room for private sector and development partners to uh, to take on some of that responsibility themselves and offer credit enhancements around these projects, particularly on the equity portion? Absolutely, there is. Uh, so, so in terms of capacity, in terms of financing, these are two of the greatest challenges that that we're finding out there. Um, and through through uh, policy discussions and improvements, and and uh, a lot of uh, a lot of uphill battles, I think we are finding ways through it. Uh, but there is a lot to be done. I, I would, I, can I just add that I, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention a couple of the tools that do exist where. A couple of jurisdictions have, you know, leaned in to try and find some solutions that really um, have resulted and yielded in many, uh, you know, positive projects. And so in Ontario, the Ontario Loan Guarantee Program, it's the Aboriginal Loan Guarantee Program, really did um, help many First Nations and Métis communities access capital using a loan guarantee for their investment in green energy projects, renewable projects and transmission. And there's a significant amount of Indigenous investment in Ontario in the green economy, which is tremendous. And it's actually been seen as really a game changer for so many communities. Um, Alberta also recently, um, you know, within the last couple of years, announced the Alberta Indigenous Opportunities Corporation. And they're also doing loan guarantees in the resource sector to help First Nations and Métis communities in Alberta to access um, more affordable capital. Um, but to Stephen's point, um, there is definitely a need for more of these vehicles, and those are exclusively in two jurisdictions. And we know our country is huge, and we need more tools at our fingertips so that uh, First Nations, Métis, and Inuit can all participate um, when the when the right project comes up with the right risk profile for that community. Perfect. Actually, that's a good segue for another question that we've had come in from our uh, audience here. Further to the discussion of the Clark Lake Geothermal Project, what are some of the other potential infrastructure projects on the horizon that can be indigenous owned and collaboratively supported by strategic investments and any any particular ones to watch and raise awareness about? I think, uh, well, obviously there's different things happening in different communities, but uh, the First Nation Major Projects Coalition members focus on projects that over are over 100 million. And I know, um, you know, some of our communities are really interested in getting in, involved into the electricity grid and the infrastructure of that. And also, um, you know, other renewable projects that are up and coming, um, you know, wind projects, uh, you know, we're excited about our geothermal project. Um, for an example, there's other projects that are happening within forestry, oil and gas that we want to be involved in. 
And I just have to say that being involved in the First Nation Major Projects Coalition as a member um, for the past four years has really opened my eyes about what the opportunities are and what we can do if we work together, we become stronger. Um, one thing that I want to uh, start wrapping my head around is we don't necessarily just have to partner with First Nations that are around our territory. We need to start reaching out provincially across Canada um, and regionally uh, because there, there's opportunities for us to collaborate on, on huge projects, whether that's pipelines, um, like I said, uh, electricity, um, you know, grids and uh, cross provinces. Um, there's just so many opportunities and uh, our, our members are working diligently to, to find ways to work together. So I think that um, as you go forward, there's, you're going to see more announcements about what First Nations are doing and how they're collaborating with industry and with investors and government and, and so forth. I, I think partnerships are just so important and how you form those important partnerships um, can really come a long way. That's uh, that's a very good point, uh, Chief Gell. Uh, yeah, I think there are, there are a lot of opportunities. If we just see at uh, Kitsmat in BC, the LNG project is so huge. It brings a lot of opportunities. In Eastern Canada, as I mentioned earlier, uh, all the cleanup of the abandoned mine sites will be a huge, huge projects that will go in tender process very soon. Uh, I I'm going to add two other things. is waste management in uh, Nunavut. The current condition of the landfills, they're going to need to be reconstructed at all. So there's a huge opportunity there. We just need to have access to to, to capital and energy, uh, obviously. In Nunavut, the 25 co communities are, are working with diesel. Uh, obviously, there's a, there's an opportunity to have a more renewable energy. Uh, so a lot of opportunity and from east to west. Yeah, for sure. I'd also say, you know, if we take a good look at the federal budget, um, there were sections outlining Indigenous investments, but there's sections on infrastructure. And I think about, um, you know, transmission, just to, to Chief Gale's point, transmission and interconnection of, of, of provinces and territories. I think there's a number of projects that the federal government is seized with, that provinces and territories are also seized with, that are actually outlined in the, in the budget. So we know that the federal government is going to be making commitments there. And those are areas where I think, you know, they cross traditional territories. We see Indigenous populations um, wanting to participate and, and they would add a ton of value to those projects. And the last piece I would also say is um, let's not forget our rail system. We know that there's um, growth mm -hmm. happening in the rail system across the country. Um, these are sustainable projects um, and it's a sustainable way to move products from coast to coast. And so we're going to be seeing a lot of upgrades there. And I personally don't see a reason why uh, Indigenous populations wouldn't have an interest in, in participating in some way in rail. Um, in fact, we do know that, you know, the, the, the Cree Nation of, of Quebec have, uh, you know, been signaling a massive rail project that they're working on directly. And there's a, you know, great opportunity for collaboration partnership. Yes, Hillary, thanks for bringing that up because it's so important, like you said, to, to get our resources out of our territory um, you know, for, for us, that's a challenge right now. And we're working diligently to have our railway um, repaired because with that, it brings so much opportunity. I'll take this opportunity to squeeze in one more poll question before we uh, start wrapping up. 
Okay. Um, what are the greatest benefits to Canada for accelerating the adoption of Indigenous equity ownership arrangements? And this one's a bit of a landslide, and I think, uh, which is good to see, actually. So economics coming in with 83% or 83.3% of the vote, legal and environmental are both a flat zero, and political has 16.7%. So I think what we've been talking about today, for sure, is that these are, you know, significant um, business opportunities that are going to help, you know, all of Canada's population to make sure they have the infrastructure that they need. Um, any more comments there, like in, on the importance, the economics of these projects, just as a reiterate um, how important that aspect is? I, I would just say quickly that with economic stability of First Nations, Métis, and Inuit communities, we see, um, you know, more self-government, more self-determination, more um, decision-making, and we see healthier um, communities. And that's good for Canada. This is a benefit to the Canadian society. And so the economic piece, I, I wouldn't disagree with that at all. I think it's critical. And that economics lead to all of these other tangible well-being metrics that, um, you know, Indigenous peoples and populations across the country uh, are seeking. Mm -hmm. And uh, if I could give some advice, um, just if you're if you're planning on building a project in uh, territory of a First Nation or a combination of shared territory within nations, that uh, partnerships are really important. And um, my community has really good partnerships um, with our local municipality, with private sector companies. And our partnerships have all started the same way by our partnerships, our partners taking the time to get to know us and understand our interests and our priorities. I think it's an uh, important um, first step for proponents that they, they meet with the First Nations and they, want, they see if they want to be involved. Through my experience working, on, working for my nation and being on council for the past 12 years, I think that when this is done, it really shows a sign of respect for our people. But it also really gives us an opportunity both for the nation and the investor to build a long-lasting relationship. First Nations are changing the way they do business. And so it would be, be my best advice that um, if you have a project that you want to build and you want it to be successful and built on time and on budget, reach out to us at the first steps. Hillary pointed out exactly how meaningful it could be to your project to not come with a pre um, preconceived plan. Work with the First Nation to build up on that plan and you will see... Um, how collaboration can really work with Indigenous community. Perfect. Well, thank you. Well, we've got five minutes left. So I'm going to go around and get some final thoughts. What have we learned? What's it going to take to drive more of these partnerships in the future? If I can uh, get each of you to have a quick one-minute comment on that. Why don't we start with Hillary, just so we can work reverse circle. Sure. You know, I think Chief Gale really just summed it up. It is about... <laughs> You know, it's about, so I, I want to, I shouldn't do this, but I'm going to, I'm going to reflect on a story that was once told to me by um, the former Prime Minister, Paul Martin, and I, I can't remember whether he was on a stage or not, but he said this to me one time, but when he was younger and he was working on his father's steamship business, I don't know enough about it, but he was going to be going to Japan and to go to Japan, he was forced by the company to do six months of training in Japanese culture and language. That doesn't happen in Canada. We don't take the time to recognize and understand that each First Nation, Métis, and Inuit community are unique. Not one is alike. There are collective of nations. 
um, within First Nations. Inuit have a common culture and language, which is very distinct from all First Nations. And taking the time to really, um, and I'm not suggesting it's going to take six months to do some research, but I am suggesting that, you know, doing the research, understanding who your partners are and understanding what their priorities are will really help you get to get to yes, will help you to get to a partnership that's meaningful and impactful. And it is not just good for the First Nation or the Indigenous community that you're working with. It's good for your company. It's good for Canada. You know, it scores you well on your ESG, but it also just, you know, is meaningful. And you're, you can stand up at, with pride in, in your company, your industry, as a government and say that we did the right thing and we had a big impact and we still were able to create a, an economic structure that resulted in a really important piece of infrastructure asset for our you know, our books. So I think, it, you know, it really goes down to understanding the communities and taking that time uh, to do a bit of research um, because it will get you a long way and it'll build that relationship of trust um, so much faster. So I'm just going to leave it at that. That's great. Thank you. How about you, Stephen? I, uh, I I wholeheartedly agree with, with Hillary and Chief Gale. I think that taking an active interest in, um, in the, the benefits of all stakeholders um, is something that is is becoming more and more prevalent. And we need to push that a little bit and understand that uh, our actions are really governed by, governed by our values. And so at um, at the individual and at the, uh, you know, within our within our corporate networks, let's let's be mindful of what our values are and how our actions affect those around us. And what is what is a what does a good transaction look like? Uh, you know, and I think that I think that the answer to that question is very different now than it was 10 years ago. And in 10 years from now, again, it will be very different and, and really sliding towards that that end of the spectrum of uh, of of um, of everything we've we've really talked about to, here today, and making sure that we're just guided by um, uh, inclusive of impacted communities and respect for uh, the indigenous and traditional knowledge and values that uh, that are reflected and should be reflected in the projects that we bring forward. So I think that's our that that is something to strive towards together. Excellent. Thank you. And Benoit? That's a, a very good point, uh, Stephen. Uh, uh, in business, uh, the first years are often more financially difficult. Uh, it is during these times that uh, challenges uh, often come to light. Communication is, is the key. Um, mutual respect is, is so important. And the second one, uh, which is considered taboo once in a while, is really meeting the financial objectives and making profit. Profit is so important. Yeah. You can generate additional opportunities and create wealth. And the third is really to share the information. And I'm not talking only about strategic information. It's ongoing project, bidding opportunities and issues being faced. Never consider a partner as being too informed. I'll finish by saying that we can never underestimate the strong relationship that our partners have with nature. As such, waste management and environmental best practices must be integrated in every project. I see two main battles in the future, access to potable water and protection of biodiversity. They are the two very big challenges. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And Chief Gale, I know you've already kind of wrapped us up, but I'd love to have your last thoughts. 
Okay, I just wanted to say, um, I like thank you for having us here today, and I think all of you have made some pretty good points. I. I just wanted to say that sometimes it could be challenging, like, oh, okay, well, I don't know anybody at the First Nations, so how do I make that connection? Um, I just wanted to let you know that uh, if if you're having those challenges, you could always reach out to the First Nation Major Projects Coalition and we'll assist you and uh, see if we can help you make that connection and facilitate a meeting between your company and, and the First Nation. So I just wanted to, to leave that there. Um, because it is challenging because as First Nation people, we make decisions from the ground up. We have our, our land users on the ground, our, our hunters, our fishers, our, our traditional medicine collectors. And so that's where the decisions are made when we consider a project is on the ground. So it's so important that you do come to the First Nation first and we can help you be successful. So thank you. Thank you so much. And I'll wrap us all up now. So thank you so much for all of our panelists. And thank you to Sanex and Environmental Services for sponsoring today's webinar. Uh, Sanexon is a member of the Logistec family and has been a leading provider of environmental solutions for more than 35 years. You can find them at sanexon.com to learn a little more. So thank you again, and we'll see you next time. Infraintelligence podcasts are adapted from an ongoing webinar series hosted by Renew Canada magazine. You can find out more by following Renew Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn or by visiting renewcanada.net.